Roundhouse Crosstalk, hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. My name is Audrey Lochteff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Hannah Phillips, and we are pleased to present this podcast with you all. Our lives are made of railroad stories, and we tell the stories of the railroad through the stories of people. Roundhouse Crosstalk's podcast amplifies the stories of people whose jobs, experiences, and legacy intersect with the history of the railroad. In our next few episodes, we are focusing on the stories of Black railroad workers. They held many essential jobs on the railroad, but were often limited to service-type jobs with little access to job mobility. They faced poor working conditions, such as lack of job security, low wages, long hours, and daily racial discrimination from passengers. Despite this, Black railroad workers organized and demanded better working conditions, ultimately leading to the formation of the United States' first Black labor union in 1925, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. This episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk will take an intimate look at the lives of the Black Americans who worked on the railroad. You will hear oral history interviews from the Oregon State University's African American Railroad Porter's Oral History Collection. These interviews provide insight into railroad jobs such as red caps, porters, waiters, and cooks. All of these interviews were recorded in the 1980s by Michael Grice and are now available online. Black Americans held many jobs on the railroad, and these oral stories showcase the diversity of job placement. These interviews will give you a first-hand look at the difficulties faced by the black workers, their feelings towards the railroad, and the collective memory of shared community among railroad workers. We're starting our journey at the station with the role of red caps. Red caps worked primarily at the station, handling baggage, but also be hired to carry a passenger's luggage to their hotel. Cy Green was born in the late 1910s and worked as a red cap for the railroad. Green was interviewed three times by Michael Grice. The audio you're about to hear is from his second interview. Green touches on what it was like to work as a red cap, as well as his decision to retire. He believed in the value of unions and speaks about the discrimination on the rails and of the limited jobs available to black men. In this segment, you will get to know Mr. Green, some of his hobbies, and his views on black men working on the railroad. If you listen closely, you might even get to hear his dog, Mr. Duffy, contribute to the conversation. Chuck, you find you a job, and I'll get by some kind of way, because that's what I've been doing most of my life anyway, and I can do that. Age. Age? I don't have an age. Okay, you don't have an age. Now what? Uh... Don't ask me no more questions. Okay. Michael. Year started with the railroad. Uh, what year did I start with them? June. No, 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 no. That's when I was finally hired. June 20th, 1940. I started in April of 1940. In fact, in March of 1940. Uh-huh. When, when year did you retire from the railroad? Or leave them? Uh, July 8th. 1970, that's when I wrote out my resignation. I'm going to make very sure that I get all that down on paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a reason for that. Why? Uh, it, it means that I had 30 years. That is it. Because I started June 20th. My uh, starting date was June 20th, 1940. 40, right. Right. And my quitting time, my resignation time, was July 8th, 1970. Uh, Type of work in the first year of railroading? Type of work? Red cap. When you first started, you started as a red cap? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Type of work at retirement? I was uh, a warehouseman for Crown Zellerback. Ah, no, no. Let me see. When you last worked with the railroad, when I last red cap, red, red cap, 1970. Yeah, we distinguish July the 8th. between leaving the railroad and actually retiring. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Do you feel that was a mistake for blacks to get away from those types of service-oriented jobs? If you, if you will pardon my saying, I'm very definite on that particular thing because that's one of the things that I 
have observed very graphically over the years is that we have lost out. In what way, sir? Uh, we don't even have those jobs to go back to. Red cap jobs. Right. We don't even have those to go back to. Those jobs, while they didn't carry any prestige, they were jobs where you could make money. And they were steady. Yes. They were steady jobs for 30 years at a time. Now you can't even get one because white people, they pay money. One of my observations over the years has been that as soon as a job starts to pay money, white folks take it over. Exactly. Waiting table, men or women, even hotel maids. What does that leave us? Out in the cold, don't it? Excuse my English, but that's where it leaves us. I regret that because at least it's a start. Now what are we going to do? Start as, out as computer operations we don't have the education for, and they constantly tell us. Whether we have it or not, they constantly tell us that we don't have it. It gives them another step, another loophole, doesn't it? Sure does. I hate that. I hate that. Well, you know, sometimes I feel... And there are a few things in this world that I hate. Sure. I, uh, when I worked on the road, I could never understand that why uh, that we was relegated only those jobs. You know? Michael, uh, if, if you look back into history far enough, you will find that in, in Kansas, Missouri, in Texas, brakemen even were black. You look back that far into it, you yeah. see, you would you, you you find that that's what what it was. Yeah, because the brakeman job was outside job, tail in and on, tail out the trail. I could break them in into the train. Yeah, here in this area, and they assigned them. The conductor would tell them, "You go work with Sai. He'll tell you." How to and break. I could. How to break? Yes, and I could, yeah. but I couldn't get the job. You see? Yeah. And yeah, but this is what it this, and I didn't know at the time that. Brakeman's jobs were black jobs in the South and in the Central United States anyway. Yes. As, uh, uh, how far in or out of there, I don't know. But I think it was like uh, in the area around... Uh, St. Louis, Kansas City? Uh, St. Louis, uh, Sioux City, and, and these areas in Kansas City, and back out this way and down, down south. So how did that make you feel to train someone, 17-year-old boy, son of an engineer, and then to have him all of a sudden either be a supervisor or And he was, and the first thing he wanted to do was to declare himself independent of me by telling me that such and such a car up there needed cleaning. This is what used to happen to, and I used to, you dump, you know, I, I would salvage my own image uh, through my own independence. Right. You know, sure. Well, that was one of the questions that came up with, uh, with. Uh, this and first, I still do the same this thing. This is what this is what's so disconcerting. Uh, they would like for me, on the job I'm on now, is to clarify the situation for this white boy who's going to take my place. Uh-huh. And I tell them, uh, I ain't training nobody else, yeah. and I can do this now. Yeah. Right. When I was first starting out, I couldn't do that. But I have this option now, and that makes me feel good. Yeah, you don't have to train. No. Let the dummy go ahead and train himself. Let him learn like I did. See, and I don't mind telling him anymore. I don't bite my tongue too much for anybody anymore because ain't ain't nobody too much can hurt me. Because I only got a few months to go for my retirement. (laughs) And I ain't going to get no more or no less. No less, right. Either way. Yeah. Either way. See, and I have paid all the dues in the world. At least I feel that way anyway. Oh, yeah. People have verified that. People have verified that. Most preferred indoor activity. Listening to music, cooking, cards, board games, reading, television. All equally attractive. Raising children. (laughs) I'm addicted to that. (laughs) I like to see things grow. And I 
I like all that. The union started on the railroad. How did the uh, gentlemen <laughs> that were uh, working perceive it? Did they perceive the union as something that could help them when it first started? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very well versed in unionism and railroads. In fact, one of the dissertations that I gave during my, at my senior year was on how it, uh, that labor and management were going to have to come to some kind of agreement on an outside influence as far as mediation was concerned. Mediation, yeah. arbitration? Uh -huh. And it has been emblematic. At the time, there was not a, a federal mediation board. So, this time we're talking about the 40s here? Uh, a little earlier than that even. Okay. Uh, my dad was a union member, staunch and reverent from about 1926. In what union? Pullman Porters. Pullman Porters Union. Even though at they the time it was, at the time it was... Underground? Underground. Your father was a Pullman Porter? Yes. So it speaks for something, doesn't it? <laughs> sure. And, uh, and this is what it was. And he was, I saw where he was coming from and, and by observing things that had happened, like if they took him, if he was on a regular line, they paid him a certain salary. At that time, a certain salary was the accepted method. But if you were pulled out of line and you doubled here and doubled there uh -huh. and maybe had two to four days extra work, he didn't receive any extra money, which is why we never had a telephone until after I got up big enough to start work and I had the telephone put in my name. Huh. Because he didn't want to have them call him and tell him to double out and go to Boston or Florida and get all this extra time because he was not going to get any extra pay. Is that right? And if he asked them about it, you know what their, their answer was to him? What? If you don't like your job, go somewhere else. This and this your, was a stock this was answer. Your job. Yeah. This was your job. We're going to send you to Boston mm -hmm. and we'll get as many hours out of you in the month as we can then, yeah. for the same month That's, of salary. Yes. Based on the fact that you had a, uh, that you had a certain run. Yeah. Once you had a certain run established, then you were on salary, which included whatever else. Mm -hmm. and, the but if you change that, unions changed that because the union said if you work 240 hours, you've Get got paid. 240 hours pay. Yeah. And yeah. if you worked over 240 hours, this was the first one. Right. This was one of the first ones, I'll say. Uh, if you worked over 240 hours, then you got over 240 hours pay. Right. You know. Right. And this is where the breakdown began. <laughs> breakdown but between who? The union and the company. And, the company. Mm -hmm. and my dad was being a union man and, he, and in his heart a union representative, which is what I have been all my life, too, right. just based on his outlook on it. Right. I couldn't go any other way, and I collective have been. Action. Huh? Well, that, that collective action was valuable? To me. Yeah, certainly. It's the only way to go. Because if we don't look out for ourselves, the company is certainly not going to. And it's been my experience that they won't. Yeah, yeah it's not just that, just, just that you think they won't. Yeah. You know, no, it's, it's, it's a proven fact. It's a proven fact. That, that they have, uh, yeah. And guys, the guys asked me today, they want to talk about against unions now. I said, well, if I were you, I certainly would consider what the options are. Yeah. Before I made any definite, before definite commitment, uh -huh. because I think somewhere along the line there's something you're going to find out. The union is <laughs> of some value to you. <laughs> to you, yeah. yeah. Cy Green mentioned in his interview that his father worked as a Pullman porter. Pullman porters and chair car porters attended to the needs of passengers on the train. Pullman porters worked on Pullman sleeping cars, preparing and servicing the sleeping areas for passengers. 
Chair car porters worked on seated passenger cars, attending to their needs. Cy Green's cousin, James Brooks, worked as a chair car porter his first year out of high school. In his oral history, he talks about his uncle, who worked as a Pullman porter, the hierarchy of black American men that worked on the railroad, and the discrimination he experienced during his time on the rails. James Brooks worked as the director of the Urban League of Portland from 1974 to 1978. His story speaks to the challenges he faced, but also the relationships he built while working on the railroad. James Brooks, uh, originally I was James Thompson when I arrived in June 17, 1929, from Kansas City, Kansas, where I had lived for six years, having been born in Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, arriving in Portland in 1929 in the midst of the Depression, uh, as compared to what it, I had left in Kansas City, was a significant and memorable experience. Uh, life in Portland, even during the Depression, was substantially uh, better for a youngster than it was in Kansas City, Kansas in 1929. I immediately fell in love with the place. Uh, my uncle, Mr. Green, was a Pullman porter who had a regular job. Uh, many of the white families on the block did not have any job. Uh, so while we were poor, so was everybody else. Uh, my cousin, Cy Green, and myself today, that uh, we only want what we earn and we don't take anything, we don't want anything, anybody give us anything. Uh, we grew up in that kind of an atmosphere. I think the other thing, interesting thing about that is that taking all of this into context, in the economic system, blacks were absolutely, absolutely, no equivocation, defined in certain categories as far as the economic system. That was servile, domesticated kind of services. If you didn't work for the railroad, or one of the hotels, or shine shoes, you didn't work. If my memory is correct, there were no more than eight or nine black folks who were working in various federal or city civil service kinds of jobs. Okay, what part, when, at what point did you work with the railroad? Well, I first started working with the railroad uh, my first year out of high school. Um, I was uh, started out as a chair car porter. Another paradox. Among the men working for the railroad, there was a hierarchy. And it was a, the lines were very definitive. Um, the waiters were the elite. The red caps were the second in command in this level hierarchy. The porters were the last. And then, of course, you had the, the uh, section hands and the labor gangs and those kinds of things. So I, I very vividly recall that when I went down to apply to work as a red cap, the uh, supervisor at that time asked me who was my folks. And I very militantly told him what the hell difference that make. And I didn't get the job through him. Yeah. And uh, because I knew uh, Mr. Freeman, Ted Freeman, he put me to work as a chair car porter. And then I gravitated into being a red cap when I wasn't a chair car porter. But the supervisor of the red caps at that time wouldn't hire me because I didn't belong to any of that hierarchy. And of course, I was, let's face it, I was a snot anyway. Ted Freeman, Mr. Reynolds, are you talking about uh, Dr. Reynolds' father? Yes, that's right. And um, Willie Torrance were always concerned about what happened to the young man, the young black. And anything that those people could do to help a young black, especially if that young black was interested in going to school or furthering his education, they would do it. And to them, who your parents were or what your hierarchy was didn't mean anything as much as it did to some of the other old-time folks who had lived under that, um, that old system. 
Was there, first of all, was there a distinction between the chair car porters and the Pullman porters? Absolutely. And where did they rank in the hierarchy? Pullman porters, the, the chair car porters were below. Mm -hmm. But the red caps, were the red caps in? Uh, the red caps were next to the waiters. Was that based on in, income or perceived income? The, um, oh, the social arena in which they worked. Okay. Um, Red Caps, for instance, very a mass amount of contact with the passenger, but only for a short period of time. So the passenger felt like you were doing him a service, and he paid for that service, and that was the end of it. The waiter, the same kind of thing. Well, Pullman Porter, different kind of thing. It, it, it was almost like a master and a slave. Oh, it went on for, went on for two or three days. Yeah. See? And, and the passengers at that time had no compunction about, boy, tying my shoes, doing all those guys for two or three days. Yeah. But see, with the red cap and, and the waiter, it was like, looky, I serve you your ham and eggs, and I'm through with you. Right. Or the red cap, I put my, your bags on the station, and you pay me, and I'm through with you. See, it's a different kind of arena that they were working in. I think basically that way. Plus the fact that the tipping was based upon the service rendered at that time rather than your demeanor. Uh -huh. See, because a Pullman porter and a chair car porter, if he wasn't nice and subservient to the passenger, he didn't get no tip. Okay, but you served the man his ham and eggs and his coffee, he's going to leave you a tip. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. See? So, you know... He, it, it, it's, it's a very complex kind of thing. It's not the kind of thing that you can um, that you, you can really systematize and draw a black and white reasons for or reasons why not. And, you know, when you look at it, you have to take in all the kinds of issues to really place why it existed, how come it existed, and how come it lasted that long. And again, each one of those were jockeying for favor with the white man who really controlled his destiny. Because they fire you right on the spot. No questions asked, no hearing, no nothing, you see. It would never happen to me. I bluffed my way through uh, a lot of times. They, I think they, they didn't think I had good sense, so they left me alone. <laughs> Did you ever have, a, have to manage the issue of, am I a man, even though I'm working as a servant in this all the time. How did you manage that? Well, was it a conflict? Yes, it was, and, and there's no question about it, that uh, you have to confront that conflict. You have to say, if I'm going to get where I'm going to go, then I'm going to have to accept this, and that gives you some strength. Uh, many times, you know, you wanted to raise up and say, walk off and say, forget it. But all that does is assuage your ego. That don't put you one step forward. Makes you feel good for 10 minutes. It's like the situation where uh, black, folk, black folk says, well, man, I went there and I told this so-and-so and so-and-so and so. Oh, yes. You told him, and then what? He closed the door and forgot about you. You off the record. So all you've all you really done is just made yourself feel good. and You haven't changed the system at all. So, yes, you had to confront that. What about your family system in terms of support? Did everybody work in and around the railroad or what, what range of occupations, say, did Mr. Green have? See, he was a Pullman porter. He was a Pullman porter, right, okay. yeah. And I, oh, I, I, the names of the people, Mr. Johns, uh, Mac Johnson, uh, Mr. Lee, Jim Lee, all those people, when I started working, when Cy started working, they were supportive because they knew they, yeah, sure, they knew Mr. Green, and they used to come over to the house and saw Cy and I as kids. And so anything they could do, yeah, they would, for instance, I did what would happen. Like, um, if I was a chair car porter and I got on the train, and, uh, oh, Mr. Lee or uh, Mr. Johns or somebody, they would be easy to, so-and-so, so he's a conductor, watch out. Or, hey, it's all right, you can get do with these kinds of things. And it's a kind of an underground, you know, and so that's where we helped each other, you know. Right. But if you had a conductor you could work with, and these guys knew him because they traveled up and down for years, right. and so they knew every conductor there was and I, who was. So they could tell you, man, hey, when you leave so-and-so, you get your 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it was. So, again, it was a, a kind of an underground system that gave you support. And I think you put the, 
put the term right when you said family. Anything else that you can think of that had to do with the railroad and the dynamic that it played in your life? Well, I think that um, when you look back upon it, given the circumstances, given the arena in which we were in, uh, we have to be thankful because those were hard times for white folks and black folks. Now, even here again, you can use all kinds of terms. You might have said you sold your, 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 your personality, you sold your psyche for a job. That may be true. But while there was lots of white folks in this city on WPA and taking welfare, the blacks were working, earning income. Time, like I say, practically every black family, there was hardly a black family in the city of Portland that wasn't working. No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. There was that. Uh, there was that uh, line drawn, invisible line that was there. Uh, it was a caste system. Certainly was. Again, you got to look at it though. It gave us strength because we were working. We were independent. I remember. I never forget when they. In, you know how they used to do in. Uh, first or second grade or whatever in school, they go around the class and what does your father do? And uh, I felt real ashamed. I said a Pullman Porter. I felt kind of ashamed to say it. You know, because, well, there were, as a black person, there was only three or four things they could do. Pullman Porter, a waiter, or a shoeshine boy. That's it. You're about to hear the story of Willie Rice. Born in 1921, Rice grew up in Starkville, Mississippi. He began working for the railroad in 1944 at the age of 21. Rice worked as a waiter on the Great Northern Railroad for 30 years. Waiting tables was typically the highest paying job on the railroad available to black men in the early 20th century, largely due to tips. Rice shares his experience as a waiter on the Great Northern Railroad and also speaks out about the lack of opportunities for young black people in the workforce. Voice praise, Stockford, Mississippi, December 15, 1921. And when did you first start working? 1944, around about July, as a waiter. Oh, you want to know just now about uh, what the railroad was really like at the beginning, the bad or good? Oh, well, it was, it was really bad for black men at the beginning, really bad. The name was being called any name you could practically think of as a waiter to bring the food or the coffee to the table. Maybe it was just a way of life, but it was an insult to anybody. In the old days, tell me about uh, what you recall about your first days working on the road. You know, when you first came on, what did you do? And who did you meet? What were the guys like that you worked with? What went on on the car? <clears throat> My first trip out, I didn't even have an application in. They just sent me out to work. I was working with uh, the St. Paul in the Winnipeg candidate. And it was just nice and making about 46 cents an hour. Somewhere in that neighborhood of 44. People's always saying insulting things to you. Call you John, Henry, anything they thought to call you, and that's what you had to go along with. And all the bosses, like all the stewards and things, and all the conductors, they was bad on you. Any of them could just say, well, you don't come out on this crew. I even got fired back at the time for not getting off the train to go get the white steward or a bottle of liquor. But that was just a common thing, to get in trouble for not doing whatever the white man told you to do. He could tell you wrong. You had to do it wrong, and then you go to the office and report, and you know you wasn't going to get no justice, so you just go and do whatever you thought was best for yourself. Had you worked before that? Yes, I had been working a long time. What, what kind of other kind of work had you Well, done? I had been an at uh, Cadillac Motor Division in, in uh, Detroit on Clark, Michigan. I was there, and I got a flash. CIO was the 
was the union there, so they didn't take black in. Just a, a few professional black in the blueprint room and things like that. So I got to try to give me a lifetime job down there. But I never did work a day. They gave me a job as a janitor with janitor's pay. And if I had belonged to the union, I would have got the wellness pay and would have been the janitor. So when I found out I got a bad deal, I left and went to Minnesota. Started working the railroad. And that was Great Northern at the time? Yeah. What was the name of the train that you worked on? I worked on the uh, Oriental Limit, Empire Builder. That's about it. Was any one train uh, better than another, or did you prefer to work on one than another? Yeah, yeah, well, he had a coach section at that time and a Pullman section. I prefer working on the Pullman section because it wasn't too crowded. Who made the most money on the train among the black men? Among the black men, I would say the waiter. Mm -hmm. He had so many customers to deal with, and the average fell on a nickel of customers, he was doing pretty good. Pullman Porter, he did pretty good too. That's in the sleepers. But overall, I would say the waiter made more because he was dealing with more people. Because dining car, he was the one did all the work. And the sleeping car, that is as of now. The chair car, man, I don't say that he have an easy way to go, but he got a better way to go than anybody on the train. He has to deal with a lot of different people, but he don't have the same load of work. Not the same load of work to contend with. I can leave here, I can pretty near do my work coming in here for going back. All I got to do is do a little cleaning of another car. And I didn't like making up beds for maybe a whole Pullman car. And you got to do the clean up. Then they serving coffee, milk, juice every morning. Where it used to be, you'd be trying to make the bed up while the guest is up there eating breakfast. You there trying to serve coffee to the other guy just waking up. Had his hardest job on the train. Did you know any red caps in Minneapolis? Yeah. What was their job like? Their job was just handling bags and stuff like that. Putting people on the train with the bags. They made good money. Not good money, but at that time they'd make a dime a bag. That was pretty good. And when you ran out of Minneapolis, where did you run to? I leave there and go to Luce, Minnesota. I ran over there for a short time, and I left, beat it off that run, and I came on the run from... St. Paul to Seattle, and from Seattle back to Chicago. That's been where I spent most of my 40 years, right there. I said at least 36 almost put there. I spent 30 years as a waiter. What about the crews that you work with? What are some of the things that you recall about working with other men? What was the job like? Working with most men was nice. Most The biggest trouble I had working with was with white stewards. What about the money? that flowed on the train? The money was pretty good, pretty good. The money was pretty good. You you really just make your own money. It depends upon how you treat a person, then that's the principle what he's going to give you. If you didn't do much, you didn't get nothing. Right. You let him talk to you in a way, and you kissed him and did everything, you made pretty good money. Uh, that type of clown around and making money. You definitely have to be a clown to make some money. You ain't going to make no money being a gentleman. Hmm. Might not even go out with that crew next trip. I was black, well, it's a shame to tell it, but my last time, that's only been about 14 years ago, a lady came on and she ordered uh, some grilled ham. I was the waiter, so she didn't want no potatoes, she only wanted uh, some peas. So I get something to hand the peas into the kitchen and says, broil ham with peas, and just started to set off her. So old chef, he didn't want to do it, though the inspector sitting there in the dining car, so he started an argument. And I continued to argue because I wasn't going to let it run over me. So I started to go out and get this uh, dick hole and come out there and straighten it out. But I knew it was a guy that snitched. So I just went on through and forgot about it. When I got in town, they rode me up. They rode me up. So the same dude was sitting out there in the diner, which was the inspector, was a friend of the ship. So he caused me to pull me out of, out of service. And I said, what do you mean, pulling me out of service? I said, I'm, I wasn't trying to please the guests. You sitting there in the diner. I said, I didn't think enough to even mention to you after he started dialing. So he said, well, that's the way it's going to be. He said, if you don't leave the crew, so I left the crew.
So he did, what, what he told me to leave the crew or be pulled out of serving to have an investigation, so I left the crew. Sure. That's what I did. I left the crew. That's why I didn't have no chance to win. Sure. Was there a time when you worked and there wasn't a union, and then a union came on, and was there a difference? No, no we always had a union. Always had a union. What union was it? At uh, EFL-CIO. Who did they represent? They represent just the porters and waiters. It was just kind of like a union, uh, like a company union, something like that. You had to be one of the dining call porter or something to be there at a union. So you didn't expect much and you didn't get much. From the union? No. So it was mostly like a company union, whatever company, that's what it was. What kind of situation would people take to the union and try to get help? Well, most likely, there was a lot of mis getting along there with conductors and porters or the white stewards and the waiters. And these, most of the cases, they had trouble with. And they lost 99% of them. You didn't have a chance once that we won one case, but... Uh, it's a waste of time for the most part. It's a waste of time. What was the most interesting thing or among the most interesting things that you recall working on the road? Meeting different peoples, nice people. And most of them are nice. The guests are much better today than they was, I would say, 30 years ago. People's traveling is generally don't have much, too much trouble with them like he used to because they don't call you all these dirty, nasty names. How about the idea of having to be away from home? Did that uh, really affect you or affect your family at all? That no, that didn't affect the family. Most things about being held away from home. See, uh, we used to get paid for being held away from home. Like, say, a terminal. Well, Poland would be a terminal. So we would be paid for the whole day here. What about uh, one, of the, one of the things uh, that, that um, when I get all done with this, we'll be sharing this with young people in school mm -hmm. to help them appreciate some of what you went through to make life better for them. See, no matter that people treated you bad and my dad bad and, and so forth. In the meantime, you were able to establish a home, yeah. raise a family. I don't know about your children, but to do those kinds of things. Okay? No, my, 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 my daughter is a lawyer. Uh -huh. okay. I scuffled to get her a degree. No, she's a bona fide lawyer sitting right there, and she's well off on her in, the, in her field. Well, I teach school, right? So I deal with a lot of kids, 11, 12 years old, 15, 16, 17 years old. What do you think is important for them to know? Let them know that they're black and they ain't going to get the opportunity that white get. I, I, I know this is true. You think that their identity <coughs> is important? To, I know, know that's important. I, mean, I put up with a whole lot of stuff. That's the only thing about it. Yeah, put up with a lot to get ahead. In that sense, uh, when you think about the jobs and opportunities that was available to you, uh, do you value your experience on the railroad? Do you think it was uh, No, I was white. Being there all them years, they didn't train me in no feeling, sort of, where I didn't deserve anything. So they almost got me feeling the same thing, but I know it's untrue. Just the way they do things. What about other black men that you know? They uh, work jobs better than the railroad, or were they worse off, not quite so fortunate to work on the road? Uh, well, most of the guys, you mean just black? Uh, black men. You know. Well, they had uh, putting your jobs off what, uh, what they would hire you. And that was the packing house. It had you there. Red Caps, you could get a job there. And they had a place called uh, Seagulls. That's where they made refrigerators and stuff like that. They would hire you there. So you had a pretty good chance of getting a job. And the uh, streetcar would hire about three. So, because your jobs in the Twin Cities was packing house and, uh, and railroad. And the blacks did pretty well that had them jobs and didn't get fired and put up with what they had to put up with. They did pretty well. So I'm, I'm a good example. I did good with what I had to do with old part. It took 40 years to do it. I doubt if it were worth it. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't do it. Not go through what I went through to really get where I am. Uh, the abuse? The, the abuse. Hours. No, the abuse. Fairness, there wasn't no fairness back there at that time. It ain't much now. And that's, that's true. I've been pretty observant in that uh, situation. Yes, too. It's, uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, I don't pay no attention. I'm just keep right on going. Yeah. Yeah. Wait for the, wait for the promise to yeah. come. <laughs> no, I don't worry about that. Just keep right on going. 
Mm -hmm. I'm going to make it. Mm -hmm. I done made it already at my age. I should have been retired, but I won't retire. The last story you will hear today is the oral history of a railroad cook named Woodrow E. Wilson. After serving in the Navy, Wilson worked his way up to second cook with the Union Pacific Railroad. The cook's position was highly sought after because out of all the positions available to black men on the railroad, cook was the only job that did not work directly with the passengers. In his interview with Michael Grice, Woodrow E. Wilson shares stories about his childhood in Texas, his time in the military, his work as second cook for the Union Pacific Railroad, and some of his favorite memories. My name is Woodrow E. Wilson. I was born in Dallas, Texas, January the 13th, 1924. And my mother had four girls and a boy. She sent us to a place called an orphanage home in Gilmer, Texas. And this was an all-black orphanage home in Gilmer, Texas. And I stayed there until I was about, oh, I'd say 14. Then I went to a, a place called Paris, Texas. I was with my, I went to live with my half brothers, and I wanted to join the Navy, but I wasn't quite old enough. So you had to be 18 to get in the Navy. Right. So my mother came and she had to sign some papers in Los Angeles so I could join the Navy. Right. She and had been living in Portland. She had been living in, she's living in Portland. Uh, what year was that? That was in, um, okay. about 42. Okay. Yes. So your mom was living here around the Mom, she was living here in the 40s and so I came home about in 42. Uh -huh. I went in the Navy right. and I went to San Juan, Puerto Rico where I was stationed at. Huh. Spent about three and a half years in the Navy. And after I got out of the Navy, I came to Portland. I'd picked up some cooking skills in Paris. I worked at a few restaurants around in Paris, Texas, which I was more or less a helper and I was watching the cooks and things like that. So, well, well, I don't want to tell you down there, down there, there a lot of blacks to do this and that. So I was washing dishes at restaurants and cafes and things like that, being around food, right. And so I got got out of the Navy, and I came, I went to Los Angeles. Uh -huh. And then my sister talked me into coming to Portland. I came to Portland where my mother was living. Okay, and when you got out of the Navy, now what year was that? Was that, was in, that was in 46. Okay, all right. Now, okay. That's about the years. Okay. Then I came on to Portland uh -huh. and to stay with my mother. Uh -huh. And then I went, I worked at a poultry yard for about, oh, about two months. Poultry. Poultry, yeah. Then I left there and started working for the Union Pacific Railroad. And I stayed there till in 1953. And I went from a fourth cook, then I went on to the third cook, and went on to a second cook. What was the difference in the jobs? What did and the fourth cook do? The fourth cook, he washed the dishes and things. Uh -huh. And the third and cook? And then third, the third cook, he peeled all the vegetables, you know, and helped wash the dishes. And then got to be the second cook. Second cook did most of your frying and watching the chef, helping the chef bake and do things like that. Mostly baking meat and pies and things like that. During the time that you were working on the train, where did you travel to? What was your run? Oh, I ran from here to Chicago on the streamliner, city, city Portland, Portland, city of Portland. And then I would go from, uh, also I would go sometime to Green River, Wyoming. Back. And back. And sometime I would go up to Seattle for three days and come back. Uh -huh. So it was really nice. And uh, also, I would uh, sometime we would go out on specials, and I would go to places like Omaha, plus Denver, things like that. Now what would a special consist of? Special would be consist of soldiers, and we fed them three meals: breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What I would, what we would do, sometimes we would be borrowed from the Union Pacific to go out 
on the Southern Pacific, which that's from here to Oakland. Right. We would go on the U Southern Pacific down to Oakland and prepare meals. We'd do that about three or four days. And then I, got, I left the as railroad a as second cook. Second. I left the railroad. You know. Okay, you still contributed to the right, food on for the food on there. You get much feedback. Oh yes, we got very a lot of feedback, and the people enjoyed and things like that. You know. There, where did you sleep? Well, we had we we would sleep in a car next to the dining car. We would tear it down, and we would make a bunks, make our bunks down, and things like that. Was this a dormitory car? It was kind of like a dormitory car. And all the crew would sleep right on there, see, in this car. And it was pretty nice. Do you, you maintain a relationship with the uh, gentlemen in the, uh, through the Railroad Senior Citizens Association? Is that a, is oh, that yes. a pretty good organization? Oh, yes, that's a pretty good organization. I still know the fellas, and we all still converse with each other and things like that. The, yeah. Working on the railroad obviously was a very special time, it, even for the people that only spent right, a few years, like right, myself, right. Uh, because it was one of the few places that blacks got in. Right, right. Uh, what do you think other people's uh, perception of the railroad is, or how did it work for them? Oh, I, th I thought it worked real good for them, especially for the waiters, because you take a lot of waiters, they bought homes by working for the railroad, you know, and the, and the, the money was really... The money was really nice, too, you know, per se, tips per se and things like that. So the guys got a chance to buy things that they wouldn't have, in other words. See, in other words, you got job. The job on the railroad, you couldn't get jobs in Portland like that, you know. And the railroad, you could get real good job, you know, even though, I tell you, like, uh, if... Even if you wasn't skilled, by the time you got on the railroad, you build up your skill. You get a chance to really do things on the railroad. I like the railroad. What was the what was the hardest thing about working on the road? Was it being out of town or meeting the the long hours? Or? Well, it really to me. Well, during that time, I was a young man. It was being out of town. I want to come in. I'll never forget. I had to go out. Duke Ellington was playing someplace, and I had to go out, and I hate to miss it. You know. Uh -huh. And I definitely had to, you know, go out on the train and a lot of things that I missed that were, by me changing jobs, I got a chance to, you know, participate in all of these things. On know. the other hand, while you were out of town, you were getting a chance to, to travel and travel. see other cities that, and, perhaps and, from another angle, right. people who were stationary didn't have a job that took them places, right. weren't able to see. Right. So. Did you appreciate that? Oh yes, I really appreciate that because sometimes I'd get to Chicago and and uh, it was I like some hotels and things that I'd go to in Chicago. I established friendships in most of those cities and things like that. Was yes. this the case with most of the crew that they yeah most of the crew the city at the most other end? of them enjoy the city at the other end. They they established friends, you know, and sometimes the friends would even come out here, you know and special things and they'd get a chance to meet and you know converse with each other it was really nice yeah anything uh, any special incident that you can think of that i never forget this was in 1948 i do remember this date <laughs> we had a snowstorm and it was in green river wyoming and this snowstorm the train got bogged in all this snow and they couldn't move out and uh, Stewart came on, Stewart told all of us, now, we have to feed these people because they are stuck here. So we have to feed them and everything. So we didn't know we, we was going to run out of food if we stayed, you know, because we, usually we don't take food less than about a couple of, three days because we usually get where we're going. But by the same token, we knew that we didn't have enough food to get beyond three days and it, this was about the third day and we started looking for food well right on this track farther over was a box car and it had food in it and we broke in that and got some food and things like that and we had to feed all the people free and also we condemned all the well we condemned all the whiskey on the train too see and uh, we stayed there and then until until finally about four days, which we thought it lasted by six. We didn't know what would happen. And about the fourth day, it kind of started smoothing out, and then we got ready to go, which was really nice. Huh. Yeah, 
Yeah. But you, uh, during all that time, you've kept it from being a crisis. Right. By, we've uh, kept from being a crisis using, by using ingenuity, ingenuity and, and also by uh, breaking in this car and getting these supplies where we can keep feeding, you know, keeping the food up. Uh -huh. So the passengers, you know, we, we we didn't let them get panicked. Right. Of course, you that know. was a service to the so, railroad. Right. Then. Right. So it was all right. Huh. So, and I... And then, too, I think you get friendly with the fellows more that way when you get into crisis and things like that, you know. Did the so, fellows seem to pull together as a team? That's what yeah, I Yeah, they really about. did. They pulled together as a team and and really, by, I don't know, when the fellows work as a team like that and they go together and they stand together right there and they kind of tell about their family and you discuss your family, you get to be where you really know each other, you would, know. Would you say that they generally got along? Uh, as a crew, there wasn't too much they, blessing because they had to work together they, for they, days at a they time. They generally, generally they got along, you know. You had a few little incidents, it wasn't much, you know. But really, they, or as a rule, they got together because when they come in town, I tell you, when I came in town, some of my friends I'd go see all the time, you know, when I came in town, very, very nice. And one of the, one of my chefs, when I was on the railroad, he moved, I was living in southeast Portland then, he moved all of my stuff over here on Northeast in this house I'm living now. Ah. And I got ready to pay him. He said, just put some gas and forget it. Ah. You know, those, right. these kind of guys yeah. they were, you know. Yeah. All I can say, I, I enjoyed working on the railroad, and I still keep in contact with all my fellas that I worked on the railroad with and some I knew of when I was on the railroad, and we still converse with each other and everything. Ah. So I think railroad was really nice, nice place to work. I really do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk. If you're interested in learning more about the stories we highlighted on today's podcast, Head over to the Oregon University's African American Railroad Porter's Oral History Collection on the Oregon State University Library website to listen to the unabridged versions of all 18 interviews. The link is in the show notes. We want to give a special thanks to Dr. Natalia Fernandez, the Interim Director of Special Collections and Archives at Oregon State University, for allowing us to share this collection with all of you. If you enjoyed this week's episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share, like, and subscribe. This episode was created and produced by Jason Rankins, Jake Jennerjohn, Audrey Loktev, and Hannah Phillips. This has been Roundhouse Crosstalk from the California State Railroad Museum. See you all next time.